Hi, this is Deborah Isle from Romeo Void, and you're listening to me talk to Holly and Dave on What Difference Does It Make? Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What's happening today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? I'm definitely not feeling a void today. Oh, okay. And why would we be talking about a void, a Romeo void, so to speak? There's no love on this particular podcast. (laughs) Never say never. Okay, there you go. Our guest today is... Deborah Ayal, who is the singer of the band Romeo Void, they are releasing a new record for Record Store Day. And just so pleased that she's agreed to talk with us. She was part of the San Francisco music scene back in the early 80s. We talked for a while and I like to keep a a tight podcast. I cut and chop. I throw things out on the ground. And then Holly swoops in like a superhero. Oh, a YouTube superhero. Yes. What do you do with these uh, little morsels that just... Did not make the cut on our podcast. (laughs) You can find these outtakes from the podcast on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast or on our other social media at WDDIM Podcast. And Deborah was delightful. So please check it out. Delightful, the lovely Deborah. (laughs) So now all this the lovely, delightful talk, let's get into it with Deborah IL on the What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Hi, Deborah. How are you? It's so nice to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Great. I didn't realize there's two of you. This is the first one I've done with two people. Happy to see you. Thank you. First uh, hard-hitting question. Last name, Deborah Ayal? Ayal. Ayal. Like I-L. Yeah. I-L. Okay. Can you give me the uh, the origins of that last name? Well, my great-grandfather's name was Ayal Wahawa. So I'm Native American on half of my family. So our family just shortened his name as our family name because we didn't have surnames, you know, in our culture back in the day. So you have lived in San Francisco post Romeo Void. I've moved around a lot, especially since I got divorced and got sober in 1996. I lived in the desert, Mojave Desert, uh, near Palm Springs and taught high school at Desert Hot Springs for the last nine years. And before that, my husband and I lived in Sacramento for about two years. And honestly, it's sort of a little bit sad, but I knew that maybe my marriage was in trouble when my my first husband was listening to the Squirrel Nut Zippers, and I was listening to Nirvana. (laughs) I was like, we're going different directions. (laughs) In uh, college, when you, that's how your band kind of came together, right? Uh, Frank Frank and I originally got together because we were both working in our departments. I was working over the summer for the video lab in the performance department, and he was working in the gallery setting up this big elaborate Alice Aycock show in the gallery. And so we both have lunch at about the same time, so we'd run into each other at lunch. And then pretty soon he'd come out over to the video studio, and he was like, you know, I've got a bass guitar, because he found out what I was sort of up to and that I like to write. And I said, oh, maybe I should do a performance piece with you that we can record, and I can do my poetry, and you can play your bass. And he had a drum machine. That set us up to then pretty soon go, well, let's get a guitar player. And let's make a band. <laughs> 
So it was like your idol, Patti Smith. Isn't that one of your first influences was listening? Oh, absolutely. Her whole free verse and just kind of, you know, slightly improvisational, but yet, you know, in a rock context. Actually, I think she was a little bit more rocker in a way than I always was as far as like Keith Richards t-shirt and stuff like that. You know, I remember um, seeing her in the early days in one of those But she fascinated me completely, and I just loved her kind of non-gender, gender, gender, you know, the way she could move through the world that way, and she's just really an inspiration, yeah. Do you follow her on Substack? Actually, I don't, but I probably should. I follow her on Instagram, you know. Right, right. That's really the only social media, and I am woefully behind, I have found out, on following podcasts podcasts are this huge world I never really understood until I started doing promotion you know through Randy and he's like this is how it's done now it's like well if you want to you know get me in touch with college radio they were you know really big for Romeo Boy and he goes that doesn't really how people are discovering music anymore it's mostly through podcast programs and stuff I was like okay Lead me into the 21st century because <laughs> I'm very 20th century as I, you know, you get older and that's my roots. I was born in 1954. So mid-century modern here. <laughs> so maybe not discovering podcasts, but on Instagram, because we've been following you on Instagram for a while when you were, when you were okay. still teaching, when you were living in the desert and you were teaching and yes, you're good on Instagram. Yes. Oh, for sure. And actually at that school, they wanted you to at least be on one platform and, you know, talk about what you do in your classes. I had given up uh, Facebook and Instagram seemed, you know, really good option. Because mostly people just like your pictures. How did you end up in this small town? I am officially retired from teaching public high school. 29 Palms, like that area, the Joshua Tree, it's very art- artistic community. What is it about the desert oh. that creates this uh, artistic community and network? Well, I would say that when I went there, a lot of it was the affordability, you know, because I came from San Francisco. And the reason I moved out of San Francisco is because the dot-com thing happened and, you know, prices went up and the last apartment I lived in got sold. It was a four flats and they all got sold to be turned into condos. And I was like, well, I didn't move to the Bay area in 1977 in order to move out to Vallejo or somewhere, you know, where I could afford to live again. So the person I knew and was my boyfriend at the time said, well, let's move out to the desert. It's always been my dream. And I hadn't even really been down there. I'm just one of those people though. I'm like, well, you know, look up things and I can find my way in this new environment. And of course we went down there for a couple of, you know, initial visits and thought it was gorgeous. And I knew I'd be able to find places to swim. So yeah. Did you run into Josh Homie there? Cause I know he did a cover of Never Say Never. I don't know. If- yes, I did run into him once. It was so exciting. In fact, I was just recalling it the other day. It wasn't too long after that came out and a girlfriend of his had contacted me probably I was on Facebook at that time and said, you know, I'll send you the little CD single if you want, you know, just give me your address. She lived down in Palm Desert. And of course, uh, 29 Palms is the high desert and Palm Desert's the low desert. So I said, oh, thank you. You know, and she sent it to me. And so anyway, one morning I was going into this uh, restaurant 
from the back door because there was a parking lot back there, but you could also go in the front door. And as I was going in the back door, I could see him starting to leave through the front door. He's an unmistakable yeah. person. Very tall. You know, he stands, what, six, four or five? Yeah. He's really tall and he's got red hair and he's, you know, kind of Viking build, you know. And I was like, that's him. I know yeah. it. And so I went, you know, running through the restaurant trying to dodge all these people to get to the front of the restaurant. And when I got out front, he was just hanging around talking to some people. So I like, hello. And he's like, oh, I know who you are. And I was like, yeah, you covered my song. We had a little moment. It was all smiles and friendly. And so then I'm like, well, thanks for you know covering my song with a kazoo. <laughs> You know, I thought it was pretty ludicrous and hilarious, but I like ludicrous and hilarious. You know, giddiness is next to godliness. And so um, that's not my line, it's Tom Robbins. I don't know if you ever read Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a line in that book. That's and funny. I've just remembered it ever since because it's kind of something to live by. So I, I was just going to have my 50th birthday party. And I invited him. It was like the next day or two days or something. He's like, yeah, well, we're recording. So we probably won't come by. But, you know, thanks for the invite. That was my meeting. Oh, I asked for a hug. And he gave me a hug. And that was nice. (laughs) Very sweet. Okay. So did your kids, your students, when you were teaching, did they know about you? Did they know of your career with Romeo Void and as a musician? Only if like their parents or maybe their grandparents told them because they recognized my name. And then at back to school night, some parents came because they wanted to meet me because, <laughs> uh, you know, they used to dance to Never Say Never, and, <laughs> you know, 80s. <laughs> the kids themselves, not too much. But that has kind of changed a little bit because a lot of young people are now really looking into things that had happened. And also, if your music happens to get on TikTok or something like that, there's people that have contacted me that don't even know that we're not a band and we're performing. When are you going on tour next? When's your ne- next record coming out? And I'm like, well, it's yeah. not. We, <laughs> we broke up in 1985. <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) It's pretty cool. And there was a whole little time also in like the mid 90s where parents were bringing their teenagers, you know, when I'd perform. Romeo Boyd did a series of benefit concerts for our ailing sound man who had AIDS. So a bunch of parents came that night that were fans that brought their teenagers because Slims was a, where we had it, was an all-ages club. So that was really fun to meet their parents, the fan, and then now the teenager, the fan. People are still interested in what we were doing, and I'm completely flattered by it and really nice. That brings us to why you're here. You're talking about this album on Record Store Day. This is recorded on November 14th, 1980. It's a live record. Can you tell me the name of the club yeah. and, wh- and what was the, what was that scene like in 1980? Yeah. Okay, so it was called the Mabuhay Gardens. Mabuhay. And there were um, Mabuhay Gardens. You know, Mabuhay is a Filipino name. They would have like a supper club there. They had a stage. And over the years, it had kind of devolved to having this really quirky theater group that came on for like a dinner show. And they were much more kind of in the tubes kind of, 
you know, dress up in crazy clothes and very kitsch and stuff like that. They did music, but they also did like skits and they were a little risque, but like not strippers, you know. But after that was over, starting at 11, it was all bands. And so I went to see, you know, The Victims, Negative Trend, The Toiling Midgets. I remember seeing Jello Biafra when he first moved up from Santa Cruz and still wore like Guatemalan shirts, you know, and kind of had that little mime sort of thing going on. <laughs> so it was just like this great gestation ground. And, you know, like, like I said, there was bands there seven nights a week and I was going to art school. So I probably went down there at least four or five times a week to see whatever, whoever, you know, was playing and Devo came through when they were still showing that Bougie Boy video when they performed, you know, in the playpen. And Lena Lovich came through and performed there, which was pretty awesome. And, you know, and then we were an opening band for a lot of other bands before we ever headlined there for a long time. And, but I saw um, Penelope Spheris's Decline of Western Civilization. Yeah. yeah. So that was like, oh, wow, you know. Or was the scene similar in San Francisco? I mean, watching Decline, did you get a sense of deja vu? Like, oh, I know this character, I know this person, or, you know, I recognize A little bit, yeah. I think in San Francisco, I sort of avoided a lot of the drug crowd more, I think. You know, I knew the people from art school and some of the girls who worked in the strip joints, you know, and their boyfriends who did sound at the strip joints and stuff like that. It was a little bit different than just being, you know, more hardcore. But yeah, you didn't see yourself as hardcore. You were listening to punk rock, but what was like the music that you were excited by? I remember getting, um, my first 45s were like Stop Sobbing by The Pretenders and XTC, Making Plans for Nigel, The Normal, Warm Leatherette. Those were all early, like my punk, 45s. Right. Yeah. What was the record store? Where'd you go to pick up stuff? I would say often to Aquarius, but then there was a place on Market Street that you could also trade in your records. And I just don't recall the name of it, but I went there quite a bit because if you bought import records, they were pretty expensive. But if you didn't like them, you know, and you paid like an exorbitant amount at the time, $10 for them, and then you were kind of, eh. I don't love this. Then you could take a little stack of your records and go in and trade in five or six records and get two or three records. That was always really handy. And then it was rather ripped over in Berkeley, but that was like a schlep. You know, you pretty much had to have a car to get there. But I remember going there and getting Teenage Perversities and Ships in the Night, which was Patti Smith's bootleg live LP, which I loved. I doubt if I still have it, but had a few parties over my life and sometimes records go missing after you have a party and that's happened to me a few times <laughs> but i also got pissed factory 45 there with hey joe on the other side i love that yeah. you remember that the exact place you yeah. bought something what yeah what was it's important. yes it is always sort of one of those people too who listen to roommates records so I would remember records that I listened to a lot, but I never owned because I lived with so-and-so then, and that, that was their record, you know. Let's go back yeah. to Record Store Day. I, th- this was recorded, so which is kind of rare to have something from before you your first record even came out. You have like this nice sound check copy of performance in, uh, from 1980. 
Well, it's really very cool. I mean, a lot of people had to love music and care about Romeo Void for this vinyl to even come out because Terry Hammer was the sound man and he has recordings from, I think, you know, probably at least a hundred bands. And sometime during the 90s, you know, found me in San Francisco and gave me a cassette of, oh, I've got, you know, your band on cassette live. I was like, oh, great. You know, I probably listened to it once and then went, yeah, well, that was then and this is now and put it away or whatever. Another time and sometime in the early 2000s, he got in contact and said, well, I'm going to be starting to try to, you know, get this stuff released. Is that going to be a problem? And I was like, no, are you kidding? You know, go for it. Good luck. But anyway, all these years later, then Liberation Hall stepped up and said they'd put it out and get involved with Record Store Day, which is the only way is kind of to get music bursting through a lot of people at one time. I've kind of been shocked and amazed at the interest in it and the, you know, comments like on my Instagram and and that kind of thing from people being really excited about this coming out. And it's a real interesting window on the band because I think Benjamin had only been in the band a few weeks when this performance happened. And I was thinking about it the other day and I think my mom might have been there that night. Because I brought my friend Gabriella, who never went to any punk clubs. This was like her first, you know, punk club she was ever going to go to. And she went there and my mom was there. So they were like hanging out together, you know, watching out for each other. So there's only so many vinyl that are pressed. You can only get the vinyl through an independent record store that participates in Record Store Day. But the digital downloads are available on Bandcamp on Liberation Hall's site slash Romeo Void. I just listened to, I completely forgot, K-Rock was playing Talk Dirty to me. I heard this song like, oh my God, I know this song. I'm not sure I ever heard it on KROQ because we weren't down there. But Talk Dirty to me was pretty darn big. Yeah, for K-Rock, all you had to do was have some provocative lyrics and K-Rock had a great beat and boom. K-Rock, you know, they love it. They love that stuff. I did too. That's why I still remember hearing that. But I do remember the first time I heard Never Say Never on KROQ. And that was really exciting. We were heading out to Pasadena to be on KROQ. And they played it, you know, like they're hyping us coming in. And so that was pretty exciting. Deborah I.L. is her name. And Romeo Void is the band. And breaks are what we're going into right now. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out. 
because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Deborah Ayal from Romeo Void. Do you think that this will prompt a re-release of post of like a girl in trouble or never say never, that there will be demand for later recordings? I don't know. You know, we'll just have to see. What really surprised me was last night on Instagram, somebody sent me a private message saying that when they opened up their Apple tunes where they get their downloads, it was suggested Chard Remains as new music for you. Another perk of Record Store Day is issuing the single. What was Chart Remains? What is that all about? Well, honestly, I just like the phrase Chart Remains. And a friend of mine who ran a record store for many years in Hollywood called Vinyl Fetish, Joseph Brooks, he was a theater person up in Humboldt County where I was living before I moved to San Francisco to go to art school and, you know, put the band together. He used to play Patti Smith and turn me on to all this music. So he did a theater piece called Charred Remains. And I didn't ever see it or anything, but he'd made T-shirts. So he used to wear this T-shirt called, and it had Charred Remains written on it. It just kind of came to me, and then I started writing lyrics that don't necessarily have to do with Charred Remains, but I was sort of a big believer in that sort of beat, automatic writing, reverse kind of writing. So let the poem tell you what it's going to be about just in the writing of it rather than planning out verse one, (laughs) verse two. 
pre-chorus, chorus, you know, bridge, whatever. Well, I didn't understand any of that as a writer. Was it phrases that stuck out? Like you would hear something? Your two, yeah. bi- your two biggest hits have very provocative lyrics that's immediately stick in your head. Now, what? where did you hear, I might like you better if we slept together? What? Well, what did... I thought that <laughs> you th- oh. about somebody. Yeah. yeah. I didn't always like him, but yet I knew I might, you know, kind of thing. There was definitely something there in my mind that, you know, still really attracted me to him. Never's actually got some sort of bad behavior from the band chronicled in it. The Sunsuit Girl was when the band as a group stopped on our way to LA, you know, at like some burger, fast food burger place. And a couple of the band members were completely checking out this prepubescent girl. And I really didn't appreciate it. And of course, then they were talking about it in the van and I just... Ugh. So sunsuit girls must be discreet. Yeah. Is sort of how that's where that line came. Okay, so did the person who inspired the line ever know? I didn't tell him until I was gonna have major surgery. I had to have a hysterectomy. And they told me, be sure and like get all your stuff together because you know, you never know what happens when you go in under the knife. I remember thinking about it, thinking about it. And then one night I was driving, I was literally driving. And I lived down in uh, 29 Palms at the time. And I was driving in towards San Bernardino. I just pulled over by the side of the road and called him and told him. I said, I've told one other person this, another musician, and I didn't want you to hear it from me after I'm dead. So I'm telling you now, I wrote the lyric about you and he was shocked and surprised but also he was like well you always did kind of write about your life and stuff that was going on in the band and things that might be going on in the band would sound like it was a romantic partner in my songs but it might really be just how our relations were going not always so well so that's your you ought to know song like this is your (laughs) (laughs) that's fair okay that's fair okay you'll accept it Have you heard from the other band members about this new album coming out? Oh, yeah, because, well, Frank now, you know, who I started the band with, the bass player moved down to Santa Fe about maybe five years ago, and we just moved here to Raton a year ago. So I was like, well, we got to get in touch when I come out there. And so we were back in touch, and I've been to his house a few times, and we email and talk on the phone. And then Frank and Peter from Japan are doing a few interviews as well. So were there issues? You got the attention. You were the face of the band. Yeah. And you can't help it. And you're like, well, I have less time for myself. You guys are all going off to sound check. 
and I have to meet you there. But first, I have to stop at the station. Yeah, it's great. But then there's a certain sameness to talking about yourself, you know, to promote a show. And oftentimes, if you're doing a radio interview, because, you know, we would do those a lot at college stations, you'd be helping do the ticket giveaway and this kind of thing to, you know, hype people up to see your band. Well, that's work. I don't think they quite understood that because it just seemed like to them, that's all they want to talk about is her and what she thinks and all that. I think it's really generous of them that they gave me such a great platform and their creative energies and ideas musically and patience with my lack of musical training. Because I can't even really count bars very well. I like hear phrases. How many times do you do that? phrase on your guitar four times okay that's when I come in is that eight bars okay fine for never say never it was always the end of the bass line when I came in so if I was at all unsure when to come in I would just focus on the bass and then when he hit that last note that signaled I come in before he does it again well and that really helped once we got Benjamin too because there'd be a sax line I could follow right in to find the one. Some songs you sing before the one, and then some songs you don't come in on the one, you come on on the one and I could figure that out without being able to read music or anything, but I relied on quite a few cues. And I remember telling the drummer, give me a cue, okay? Because sometimes when I would hear the guitar being super rhythmic and the bass being very melodic and everything, I would get a little confused. Where does the verse start? So I I struggled a little bit, but they were always really gracious about it. And I guess I added something unique enough in their minds that it was worth it to let me struggle and find my way and create a voice with what they were doing. I'm pretty grateful for them. I've tried to get bands together post Romeo White's very hard. Well, are we gonna get paid for rehearsals? I never got paid for a rehearsal in my life. And now, very first time I'm meeting you, you're asking me if I'm going to pay you for a rehearsal. I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm not making any money doing this. I'm trying to start a new band. So I went through a lot of different band members for a number of years trying to sort of get another band together. And it really wasn't easy. Can you tell us about the producer of Never Say Never? Yeah. How did he find you guys? Well, one of his roadies on his tour bus had our first album on cassette and played it for him. And he was intrigued. And he had been working with Suicide. And so we were intrigued by that. And when he contacted us, I heard you're going to be in town. I want you to come by the studio and... We were like, really? And he goes, yeah, I'd like to try to work with you. Whoa. So we organized it so that we could spend some days working with him. Never say never happened as a fluke, honestly, because it was something we'd been working out at sound checks, but never played him because it wasn't finished. But then the engineer came to our gig at the end of our few days recording with Rick. And we played that song as an encore because that was when you could play that kind of stuff you hadn't really worked out yet. And he was like, why didn't you guys ever play that for us? We're like, well, it's not really finished. He was like, well, I'm calling the studio because we're loading your gear back up into the studio because I already called Rick and told him we got to go back in the studio and record this song with you guys. And so it still wasn't finished when we went in the next day. And we recorded like a 13-minute version, which then with the miracle of a razor blade and 
tape was cut down to the current almost seven minutes. I remember there being a definite part where it was like, okay, this is the chorus. So you're going to go back in and sing these three times in a row. And then we're going to double your voice. So I was kind of told what to do to make that the chorus once it had more shape than kind of just the jam that we started with. I mean, the lyrics were there. I didn't rewrite them or write them new. They were all there, but, you know, they just kind of got arranged. You learned how to create a pop song from Rick? I guess so, yeah. yeah. He was really a good influence. He was just man of few words, but always listening and leaning over and saying things to the engineer. I remember that. Just being very gracious to us and encouraging us to just be ourselves and make it happen in our best way. Not impatient at all about anything and really chill just I remember him just being this kind of quiet person sitting in the corner of the studio in a really big comfortable chair and as tall as he is he could just fold himself up like origami with his knees up in the chair and be listening he also used to keep a little tiny pipe and he had Hawaiian weed that was evidently very strong (laughs) (laughs) that's the secret to a pop hand I want to talk about the, the cover artwork, the debut. That was your artwork? Yes. You mean it's a condition? Yes, yes, it's a condition. That was uh, trying to get the look of a woodcut, but I just used acrylic paint on a piece of Bristol board, and then I covered it with black crayon and scratched in it with a dead ballpoint pen to make it look like an etching or a print. It was from a very famous photograph of Marilyn Monroe, but I didn't really, really try to make it look like Marilyn Monroe-ness and that is you know lifted it but it seemed like a really good artwork to go on and Frank was always interested in the design of things he's got quite an eye he's an artist in his own right and he took all the Polaroids for the vinyl cover and they're probably in the CD they're so wonderful to have as documentation of our time and he's a good photographer with a Polaroid and he caught a lot of great shots of us and I'm so lucky we were able to use so many of them with this cover and the guy who wrote the liner notes Jack Johnston was somebody I met when I was going to art school on the bus and I went and sat by him on the bus because he had salmon colored hair and I had just been to LA and my friends had taken me to this store, but they sold crazy color. And people were just starting to use crazy color from England. And like, that was the only place you could get, you know, bright fuchsia and bright orange and all that kind of stuff. I had to go and meet this kid who had this colored hair because you're one of my tribe. I recognize, you know, what you're doing. And and so him and I were became great friends. Then he also had a DJ night at a local coffee house and... I'd always go to his DJ night. He called himself Jack Fan. He was always doing a fanzine or a poster or something like that. We've kept in touch. We saw each other within the last two years when I was living in uh, Desert Hot Springs. He was down in the area and came out and visited, and it was really nice. I like being able to keep in touch with my old friends. Peter Woods lives in Japan, so he's available, you know, via email pretty much. And then now Benjamin's passed. And then Larry Carter passed the year before. It really sad still. Huge loss, really, for music. And and really, the loss happened a long time ago when he got tinnitus. Really bad. He had it for a little bit, I think, even when he joined the band. Because he'd been playing in all these disco bands and stuff in the East Bay. So I think he had it a little bit. But definitely after touring with us, you know, in the huge sound of the drums, 
I remember them doing decibel readings of the drums in some clubs because the way the drums were tuned and the way Larry Carter played them, they were loud. Peter played through a twin reverb amplifier and you know, he had a Telecaster and that thing can get very bright. And he would be standing behind Benjamin. I used to like to try to stand in front of Frank because I could really orientate myself by listening to the bass line. Yeah, the tinnitus made it so that Benjamin couldn't play sax anymore. He was always extremely interested in creativity and self-expression. After his tinnitus, he took classes in acting and played acoustic guitar and did these jazz spontaneous vocalization pieces. He got up the courage to do that kind of thing from his acting. He performed those around the Bay Area. So he could still express himself. Exactly. I watched the VH1 reunion special and went, you know, as he steps in the room, just, you know, the best dressed guy in the, in the room. I'm sure that's the way he always was. Right. Always. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Somebody uncovered this old footage in San Francisco in 1980. And it's just a club scene at one of the popular clubs of that year. I think it was the Oasis and it's Benjamin and I dancing together. And they sent it to me on Instagram. Wow, is this you? And I'm like, yeah, that's me and Benjamin. It was pretty awesome. It was really nice. We're still together on some level. Oh, (laughs) for sure. Also, fashion-wise, I was going to mention your appearance on American Bandstand. I just watched that. What was the story behind the jacket? Well, Frank went and did that. Frank made that happen. He went out. I'm pretty sure he bought all the jackets. I'm pretty sure he probably made me try mine on, you know, before he painted it, but... He bought all the jackets and painted them Jackson Pollock style. And it's just, Frank's very creative, very artistic. And that was something that he thought, you know, just be a great look for us to wear in the video or on stage. And I wore mine, you know, American Bandstand. And I got to make Dick Clark laugh. You know, when I said, well, we made it onto Bandstand. And he does this wiggle. His whole body does this undulation. It's really cool. So that's like my claim to fame. Yeah, right. I made Dick Clark undulate. <laughs> Another song. Might like you better if I can see you undulate. Hey, we got to have something, right? That's right. <laughs> but Dick Clark was very respectful. You know, he came and asked us how to pronounce our names and where we were from and all that before the show. We actually played on Dick Clark on the same taping in the same day as New Edition. Ooh. You got to cool it down. <laughs> and I remember meeting all those boys and they looked so young because by this time we were all of like 26, right. you know, or whatever. <laughs> so they seemed so young because they were probably about 15. Five years, right? You guys were together? Yeah. Mm. It, but, you know, remember that Howie Klein, who, you know, first signed us to 415 Records, the independent label, he was a dogged promoter. He talked to everybody and got all those college stations lined up in the little tiny record stores in every town possible to get us to visit and all that. He had a big map of the United States on his wall, and he would put a pin in where you were touring for all the different bands, us and Translator. And it said all bands on tour at all times. So we did a lot of tours in that amount of time. From what I heard, that was the end of the band. When Columbia decided we're not going to do this for you guys, that was the end. Yeah, we're not going to be Howie Klein for you. Right. What? Yeah. Yeah. 
And they probably didn't really have the connections that Howie did with the gay clubs. Because a lot of times those were good money clubs for the bands. You could make more at a gay club than you could most just rock clubs. So it was important for us to play a lot of those clubs on our tour. So Howie had that connection. Plus then we always would go to the radio station, if not before the show, sometimes afterwards. <laughs> I remember going and doing interviews after the show on a college radio station because it was like we're all in a good mood. We just did a gig. Let's go, you know, with these they're inviting us to the station. Let's go. You miss that unlimited energy? Now we have a one hour phone call and we're winded. That's it. We're, we're <laughs> that's as long as we can last. Okay, just want to mention we're talking about vinyl, 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 but this release, this record store day release is going to be blue vinyl. Oh, it's beautiful. I hang on if you want to see it. I think I've got one here. Yeah, I do. Hang on. So really great liner notes. Lots of great posters from the early days, some of which I designed, and then the blue vinyl. And each one is 100% individual because just the process makes it non-reproducible. Oh, that's gorgeous. Oh, God, that's beautiful. Isn't that pretty? (laughs) I love it. Yes. Oh, by the way, who designed the Romeo Void logo? Well, those are actually my lips, (laughs) except my lips are not symmetrical. One of them slopes more than the other one. You know, through a trick of the medium at the time, they were able to make my lips symmetrical, but that is from my lipstick print. And then the typewriter thing was Frank's idea, always. You know, no capital letters. That was a Frank design. Turning it back to 1980, we've got a document of your performance. Yeah, and there's, I'm sure there's plenty of sharpened flat notes. Yeah, exactly. We can <laughs> hear all the. Honestly, it's hilarious because when I listened to Charred Remains, I heard where I got off rhythm from the band. And then they had to wait for a second so that I could, like, come in at the right place the next time. And, like, that's the single. (laughs) And I can hear it. So other people who are more perfectionists, I'm sure, can hear that. But it's not what jumps out at you about the song. Yeah, it happened. Yeah, it was live performance. So that's what it is. By the way, the last line is, we're playing tomorrow at Sound of Music, you know, pl- plugging the next show. Where's the Sound of Music? Where was that at? It's a tiny dive that was in the Tenderloin, which is the most uh, single occupancy hotel area. Lots of bums and junkies and prostitutes and stuff. And like, beware of your car in that neighborhood. Don't leave anything on the seats or anything because somebody might smash your window to grab it. And across from the Sound of Music, I mean, anybody who was in the scene at that time, it was a dive. It was really a dive. Pretty sure it's like the floor was almost wet, sticky, you know, that kind of place. And the stage was like maybe this tall, six inches tops was the stage. And there was no like green room or backstage or anything. (laughs) I think there was a little curtain you could sort of go behind, you know, if you had to pull up a bra strap or something like that. But Sound of Music, that's right. We were ready to play another gig. <laughs> and that was always our philosophy is we just didn't turn down gigs. You got invited to play a warehouse party after the Go-Go's played for the first time at the Hay Gardens. You accepted. And then that became like one of the feathers in our cap at the time. We played the Go-Go's after party, you know? There were so few women in the music industry in the early 80s. I'm sure you... Like someone like Alice Band. Camaraderie. Yeah, a a little, yeah. Yeah, kind of for sure. Yeah, I remember 
When we played Los Angeles, Lydia Lunch called the whiskey to see if she could get on the guest list. And I was like, Lydia Lunch, you know, is, is this really you? You know, put me on the guest list. What? You're coming? Yeah, I'm going to come. Put me on the guest list. So afterwards, we hung out together at the hotel. And it was really fun. It was when we uh, opened for Teardrop Explodes. So um, there were all these people hanging around the swimming pool at the motel wearing all their new romantic finery and like white face paint and stuff. And Lydia and I are like in our black t-shirts and panties swimming, yeah. having a great old time. <laughs> I still love to do music. And um, my husband and our carpenter slash really good friend guitarist, and I have a little three-piece group. We're doing cover songs. And we're just starting to perform them a little bit. We're doing our second front yard concert, literally in my front yard for our neighbors and all our invited friends who we've met in only a year. So maybe we'll get 50 people. But um, anyway, we're, we're also recording this because my husband's a, not only a drummer and percussionist, but an audio engineer. That's the way he makes money. And um, so he's recording us. So we want to actually try to put out an album of covers. And we're doing some very cool songs from both the 50s to the year 2000. And then that's kind of our stop. So we're doing a little Johnny Rivers. Um, we're doing Someday Soon. Do you remember from Judy Collins? Oh, yeah. One of my favorite old songs. And then we're also doing Fade Into You. Oh, Mazzy Star. And Blood and Roses by the Smithereens. And a Nirvana song, and we're doing Black, and we're doing Neil Young, Harvest Moon, and we're just, whatever songs we like and feel like we can pull off as a three-piece, no bass, just guitar, yeah. drums, and vocal, we're doing it, because it's so enjoyable, because I just retired and everything from teaching full-time, and it's like, when we first moved here, and we were working on the house furiously, like, all the time, because we had to do redo all the wiring, we redid the bathrooms, and just widened doors, and all kinds of stuff. Every night after they'd be working on the house all day, we'd sit around the living room and Aaron would get out his acoustic guitar and we'd learn some more songs. So I think we've recorded like about 16 songs now and we're going to record a few more. We've learned maybe 40. We were, we're going to have this front yard concert next month at the end of the month. We're going to do two sets, about an hour long each. It's great for me to have, like, I'm not singing my stuff. I just want to be a singer. I just want to sing the songs I love with a lot of feeling and respect and love. And I hope they enjoy them. And Raton 3 is kind of my new project. If you add a bass player, will you have to knock it up to Raton 4? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> Frank would be, you know, he lives too far away, though. I'd absolutely welcome if Frank ever wanted to sit in with us. Maybe when we play in Santa Fe, he'll sit in. And we will learn a few Romeo Void songs. I've done Girl in Trouble with different little groups where the other people I play with sing the horn line as a vocal part.
for having me on. You were very gracious. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you, Deborah. Bye-bye. All right. Congratulations, Holly. We got through another interview with another rock star. We did, Deborah. As I said earlier, and I've got nothing else, I can tell you she is just delightful. Please check out our YouTube channel for the outtakes at What Difference Does It Make Podcast and also on social media at WDDIM Podcast. I love her energy and I love learning about those punky times. We haven't really spoken to anybody from the San Francisco art scene. So many of these artists from our era that we love, all of these musicians went to art school and found each other somehow. It's really cool. A a scene that we're just not that familiar with. It's always been the way. You go to art school, you form a rock band. Just ask the Beatles, ask uh, Radiohead, and ask Romeo Void. They'll tell you. That's how you do it. So instead of going to CSUN, maybe we should have gone to like CalArts or something. Another huge mistake. All right. Well, we'll just (laughs) just put that on the list. And we'll form a band. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Hey, we do this every Friday. So subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, You can find us at WDDIMpodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Comes out once a month. It's kind of fun. Little little nice uh, photos once in a while. We'll we'll throw in of whatever Holly and I have been up to past month. So let's wrap this up. Until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.